well, even knowing that it was real at one time, it's like, it's hard to watch knowing that, yeah, this is actors portraying like what happened, but it's gotta be what happened, you know, like this place is being attacked and there's kids and women and like, I mean, everybody is probably just freaking out. It's terrifying. You're listening to Atlas Now Streaming, the podcast where we talk about your favorite movies, television shows, and documentaries on streaming platforms. Atlas Now Streaming is produced by Atlas Med Staff with your hosts, Jamie Zerlingo and Nina Granger. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Atlas Now Streaming. My name is Jamie. And I'm Nina. We are going to end the month of June, which, first of all, we're almost into July. What? Crazy. Um, but we're going to end this month with a mini series that Nina actually suggested we watch. It is available on Netflix and it is called Waco. So, if that enough doesn't tell you what it is, um, such as myself, I didn't really know anything about Waco. It's based on the true story of the 51-day siege against the Branch Davidians in Waco, Texas, that unfortunately ended in a lot of violence and tragedy. Um, Nina, you didn't know anything about this, did you? No, um, I didn't know anything about it. Um, it The whole thing occurred in 1993, which I was three years old then, so then yep. um, I uh, was not around to really remember that um, happening. And then I I had heard like it had gotten brought up when there were other like cult type things happening in the United States. Um, but I didn't really understand the context. And then when I saw that the series was getting all of this like huge, um, a lot of people are talking about it. Um, it went to Netflix and was just like blowing up and I was seeing it advertised on Netflix all the time. I didn't really know anything about it, but I'd heard so many good things and I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch this. But really going into it, I had like no real idea what it was. Um, I'd Googled it a little bit and knew it was basically just about like a cult and that's kind of all I knew going into it. So same, that was pretty much all I knew. Um, I always got an office reference. There is an episode in, I believe the seventh season where, um, the Scranton Strangler, which is a fictional, like (laughs) serial killer in Scranton, um, is being chased by police. And, um, one of the characters, Gabe says, yeah, everyone's watching it on, um, someone's computer, you know, watching the, the live feed. And he says, um, you know, we don't know how long these things could last. It could be another Waco. And Aaron goes, I believe you mean wacko. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all I knew about this. Yeah, I um, never caught that even. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's tons of references to it in shows and we just never knew what it meant. We're just like, okay. Right, right. <laughs> Nina, yeah, Nina brought it up to me, I think at the beginning of sometime in May when we were figuring out our schedule for the month. She's like, have you seen Waco? It's crazy. I was like, no, I haven't. Um, but I got around to watching it, of course, and it's pretty wild. It's only six episodes long. Each is about like 45 minutes. So you can definitely get it done in a day if you got nothing else to do or in a weekend if you want to kind of space it out. Um, but this show really, 
the show really got to me. Um, it is being, it has mixed reviews overall. It didn't actually start on Netflix. It was originally um, on Paramount and was released on January 24th, 2018 um, and moved over to Netflix um, or I guess was just put on Netflix. So I don't remember hearing about this when it came out and I didn't even know what it was once it got moved to Netflix, but it's, it's definitely an inside look on, um, primarily, I mean, four out of the six episodes are at the start of the siege, which started, um, in February, I think it was February 28th, 1993 and ended in April. Um, so we don't really get a lot of backstory on this religious sect known as the Branch Davidians. There's a little bit of backstory, but it's mostly on the siege itself. And it's, it's a tough watch. Um, unfortunately, a lot of lives were lost, um, including many children. So um, I feel like a lot of you who listen to this probably already know all of this. Um, but again, Nina and I were not really familiar with the story up front. So we, we definitely learned a lot while watching this. And um, we're going to just kind of dive into what happens within the show. And we're, then we're going to talk about um, just kind of like the making of and, you know, the true story. And I kind of just want to talk about cults because I find cults so fascinating. Um, and throughout the show, they, um, you know, they talk about how they don't want this to be another Jonestown, which of course, if you know about Jonestown, which was in the late seventies, nearly a thousand people died, um, at the hands of Jim Jones. And, um, that was what they're trying to avoid. They did not want another mass suicide, but unfortunately lives were lost anyway. So, uh, let's get into it. So, uh, Again, um, the show is available on Netflix, and um, it was developed by John Eric Dowdle and Drew Dowdle, brothers. Um, they're better known for their horror films. Um, they don't really have a lot on their, uh, rep, um, their filmography. This is the first show they ever did, and it wasn't actually intended to be a show. They actually wanted it to be a film, but realized with the amount of context or content that they had, a, it had to be something a little bit longer. Um, but get this didn't know this, the, this team was known for the 2008 film Quarantine, which is funny, and uh, the 2010 film Devil. And knowing what Nina likes and doesn't like, I'm not sure you've seen either of those. Nope. Nope. Have you heard of them? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've heard of both of them, but no desire to watch. No, they're, they're freaky for sure. Um, Devil is, um, it was actually an M. Night Shyamalan. I think he wrote the screenplay to that film. Not bad. Um, and Quarantine is, you know, a um, uh, handheld type movie, which is very scary. It's actually based on um, a, I think it's a Spanish film um, called Wreck, which is fantastic. I didn't really care for Quarantine, TBH, but it doesn't matter. Foreign horror movies are infinitely scarier. They just, I don't know why. They just know how to do it. They know how to do horror. And I'll, yes. I'll admit, there are some great, great writers and directors of horror in, um, in the United States, but definitely um, Asian horror is unlike anything else. Terrifying. Yes, um, but getting off topic. So um, let's get into the main cast of this show. We have Michael Shannon as Gary Nessner, who is, um, he is the head of the FBI's like, uh, crisis negotiation unit. Um, if you don't know him by name, he was in tons of films, um, Eight Mile, Pearl Harbor, The Shape of Water, Knives Out, and um, Boardwalk Empire. And I found when looking into all these actors, so many of them were in Boardwalk Empire. 
Did you watch that show? I didn't even. Re- I did watch that show, but I didn't even realize that actually. Boardwalk Empire came out like it was when I was in college. We were watching it, so it's been a little bit. Um, and I never finished it. I watched like the first like three seasons, I think, and then kind of got bored with it. Never gave that show a chance. Um, but I, when I was just looking at these actors, it was like, was in Boardwalk Empire, was in Boardwalk Empire. I'm like, oh my god, did they just like go to this cast and were like, hey, you want to be in a show? Um, Taylor Kitsch as David Koresh. He was um, best known for Friday Night Lights and True Detective. Did you ever watch Friday Night Lights? No, I didn't. I didn't recognize him from anywhere. I didn't. I, I feel like he had a familiar face, but yeah, when I looked at his filmography, there's really nothing that I'd seen him or that I'd seen. But Friday Night Lights, I've always heard is a really great show that is, you know, just about high school football in a small town. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, classic. Um, Andrea Riseborough as Judy Schneider. Um, she she's an English actress. She was in Birdman and Battle of the Sexes, a couple other things. Um, Paul Sparks as Steve Schneider, um, Judy's husband. He was also in Boardwalk Empire. House of Cards, uh, Greatest Showman. Um, Rory Culkin as David Thibodeau, who um, is kind of like a drifter that joins the the convent. Um, And he was um, in Scream 4. He was in Signs. And he is the younger brother of Macaulay Culkin. So kind of fun fact. It's funny. Um, I was watching this and my husband walks in the room and he's like, who is this low budget Macaulay Culkin? It's like, he's actually his brother. <laughs> um, looks exactly like him. Super weird. I know they really do look alike, except Rory is a uh, brunette. Um, Shay Wiggum as Mitch Decker, also Boardwalk Empire. He um, is one of the other FBI agents and he and Gary Nessner butt heads constantly throughout the show on how they should deal with the siege. Um, Melissa Benoist as Rachel Koresh, who is, um, I believe he, she is um, David's first wife. He has a few, but I believe she's the one that he married first when she was 14. Ew. Um, she is known for Glee and Supergirl. Um John Leguizamo as Jacob Vasquez, who is um, like an undercover ATF agent who um, they take up space in this little shack on the other side of, I don't want to say the road, but I mean, they're nearby where, where the compound is. And um, uh, you know who, you know who he is. He's in everything. Um, but I wrote down Ice Age and Moulin Rouge because those are my two favorites. <laughs> of him um and then julia garner as michelle jones or michelle jones is that right um yeah michelle jones she's in ozark there's a ton of other smaller roles these were like the main cast um i also noticed that the little girl who plays serenity who is michelle's daughter i was like she looks really familiar she was in bird box did you watch that one i did i loved that movie oh yeah that so if you know me rich and i constantly argue about horror movies and I remember when this came out I was like I thought Bird Box was great and he was like I thought it was terrible it was like what yeah he thought it was a bad version of The Happening which The Happening is a garbage film I'll just say that I don't care who knows it but yeah (laughs) Rich and his opinion sometimes I'm sorry we're recording this on Rich's birthday so I apologize happy birthday (laughs) um but let's get into the plot 
Um, so we start with the beginning of the siege with David Koresh shouting, there are women and children in here. And then immediately it flashes back to nine months prior to um, when things are pretty normal and quiet. Um, we learn about who the Branch Davidians are, which is a religious sect that um, has a little compound um, at Mount Carmel, which is right outside of Waco, Texas. And um, David Koresh is kind of like their leader. He's kind of seen as their Messiah. He knows the Bible from front to back. He has it completely memorized. He knows scripture like the back of his hand, and he um, claims to be able to speak to God. He has some really weird beliefs. So he talks about how um, all of the men in the compound are celibate, even the married men, and he handles all of that uh, burden of, of the sin of the flesh. So he has multiple wives, he has 13 children, and um, again, he claims he can speak to God, and he has all these revelations, and much like with other cults, um, you know, just has a very, uh, uh, I guess, different way of, of viewing things. Um, the first episode, he's talking about joy, and he's talking about all of um, all these other members. He's like, you know, you were, you know, you lived in Hawaii, but it still wasn't enough for you. And that's why you came here. You came to find joy. You came to find happiness. So overall, you get a sense of like the cultiness of the group, but it seems really harmless at first. Um, David is also in a band. Um, with some of the other guys, they go to a bar to play, and that's when they meet a drifter named um, David Thibodeau, and he plays drums for them. I guess their drummer was sick and couldn't go. And you can kind of tell that he's kind of a loner, um, but he's like, oh, I'm not into that religious stuff, man. But he ends up staying um, with the group for like six months um, when, when we flash forward, but not quite yet. Um, at this point, we also find out um, about Steve and Judy. Steve is like David's like right-hand man. And um, he and his wife, Judy, have been trying to conceive for a long time. And um, it kind of alludes to David had this vision of he should father her child or something. And she finds out she's pregnant, which obviously causes some tension between Steve and with, uh, with David. We flash forward six months, David's still part of the group, or Thibodeau, I guess I should say to avoid confusion. Thibodeau's still part of the group. Um, Judy's baby is born, and Steve kind of kind of has an issue with that. Um, you know, he doesn't really feel connected to the baby, which, I mean, he's not the father. Um, and additionally, during all of this, while we're learning about the group, we are seeing the other side of the story through the head of the FBI Crisis Negotiation Unit, Gary Nessner. Um, it begins with a standoff at Ruby Ridge that wasn't handled correctly, an innocent life was lost, and yet um, the ATF, which is the, just want to make sure I say it right, the ATF, um, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, they um, are actually like, praised for what happened, and they even get an increase in their budget, um, which Nessner objects to, and he struggles with his wife trying to figure out what he should do. You know, he's been in this business for a long time. He really knows what he's doing, um, but he just doesn't feel right about how things were handled. Um, word gets out that there is a shipment of weapons headed to the compound, um, so they begin to surveillance it, and then David and his son Cyrus are out running, and they notice their new neighbors, which is um, Jacob Vasquez and a few of the other guys who are undercover. They disguise themselves as ranchers to avoid suspicion that um, they undercover but steve is onto the group and he and rachel um are both like 
these people aren't ranchers. They, we need to, you know, get them out of here. But David, he knows that they're not ranchers, but he wants to welcome them and let them know that they're not hiding anything. So he welcomes Jacob onto the compound and Jacob is there to look for weapons and to find out their true intentions. The group is also concerned about like child services coming to like take them down because there have been child marriages. There have been um, very young girls having babies and um, of course the polygamy. So to avoid some of that, they actually have Thibodeau and Michelle get married. Jacob's there and he's kind of, kind of being welcomed into the group. And um, they actually find like a firearm on him and he just kind of plays it off as, oh, I didn't know I had it. Oops. Um, but they kind of start to suspect that something's up. An article comes out that um, David Koresh is labeled as a sinful messiah, um, which leads the compound to suspect that Jacob is a rat. And um, the Davidians are tipped off that the raid is coming. And Jacob tries to warn the ATF that they know. He goes running out into the street. He knows they're coming. He's like, hey, they know you're coming. Call it off. Call it off. Nobody listens to him. And they engage fire at the compound. Some of the officers are shot and killed, as well as a few of the Davidians. Um, David is shot, which like this surprised me so much. And I understand that it's true to life, but he gets shot in what the side, and then he manages to just be fine for like two months. Right. I had no, I was definitely expecting him to get like septic or yeah. get sick from his wound or whatever and nothing. Yeah. So odd. Yeah. And you see like over the course of like the next like two months, that, you know, they're, they're running low on supplies. They keep asking for help and for milk and water. I mean, and you, there's even like a really kind of a gross scene where, you know, blood is just pooling out of this bullet wound. I'm like, how did he not bleed out? I, I don't know. No idea. Anyway. So, um, yeah, David is shot. And so is Michelle's father. He later dies. Um, they actually mercy kill him, which is, which is really sad. Both parties call for a ceasefire. David calls in, um, a Dallas area radio station um, detailing the siege. And I thought this was really interesting about the show, how they, um, in any like information that isn't explicitly said by any of the characters is said through the radio show, which I found helpful. It kind of gave it a little bit more backstory and a little bit more just like information, but mm-hmm. it also made it seem like they were just very quickly being like, hey, if you don't understand what's going on, this is what's going on. And I, I don't know how I felt about that. I kind of liked it. I felt like it was kind of like you had a narrator, but yeah. it was integrated in the show. Yeah. I mean, it definitely would have made less sense without all of that, especially as somebody who didn't really know the story when it was going on in real life. Um, and it was kind of like a, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a, like transitions between different scenes, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I felt like it was helpful. Yeah. Um, so then the FBI takes over the operations. Nessner tries to negotiate with David for a peaceful resolution. And David wants the FBI to broadcast his message to the national media before he surrenders. Um, Nessner also tries to find out from Jacob who engaged in the fire first, because the media keeps saying that, that the Davidians were the ones who started firing first when they had no intention of, of using their firearms. And the media keeps saying that, you know, they're taking these semi-automatic rifles, turning them into automatic. They think that they have this big plan for a mass suicide. Everything is getting completely blown out of proportion by the media. Whereas from the inside, they're all maintaining, we don't want to kill ourselves. We don't want to do any of that. Um, 
and they're, they're very scared and they're not sure what to do. Like I said, they're running low on supplies. The women aren't lactating anymore. They need milk. They need water. They need obviously medical assistance. Um, but Jacob tells, tells them that, you know, the Davidians had no intention of engaging in gunfire. They're acting in self-defense, but the media portrayed otherwise. And they claim that Jacob was compromised. And I believe that's the last we see of this character, which kind of upset me because I, I wish we'd seen more of him, but, um, I guess that was really it. And then after playing Koresh's tape at a press conference, the compound begins um, packing to leave. But at the last minute, David says, nope, we're not leaving. And so slowly um, they start to evacuate some of the members, including children and um, women at the suggestion of Nessner. Um, because again, they're low on supplies. And um, even Rachel says like, it would be helpful if some of these people left. Um, and David is obviously very upset by people leaving, um, even though they're not like held there against their will, but you know, he obviously doesn't want to leave, lose any of his children. Um, other FBI agents want to use force, but Nestor tells them this isn't going to work. Um, and they fear again of the group committing mass suicide. Um, Koresh preaches to his remaining sect members that he'll wait for a sign from God and warns that the kingdom of heaven is coming. Um, which is very, you know, apocalyptic, but he faints midway through the sermon. Nestor and fellow agent Walter Graves then focus their attention on Steve, who turns out to be the star recruiter. Um, their shrinking food and water supplies and lack of the medical attention test the faith and patience of the group and the FBI. Um, later, the Koresh family, with help from Steve, send their video tape to the FBI, blaming the government for the fatal attack. And as parents beg their loved ones to walk out. Electricity of the facility has been cut, leaving Koresh and the Davidians in the dark. This is where it starts to get really, excuse my language, fucked up. What starts happening? Um, a week into the standoff, um, Nessner and his boss are at odds with how to proceed. Thibodeau's mother is desperate to make contact with her son. She speaks on the news about how sorry she is because she's not very religious at all. And there's even a scene earlier on before the wedding where um, Thibodeau calls his mom like to tell her that he's getting married. Um, but he, he chickens out and doesn't say anything. And she says, you know, I know I don't really believe in any of this God stuff, but you know, I just want you to be happy. And then when she gets on the news, she's obviously very scared. And she even makes friends with, with David, um, Koresh's mother. Um, they, they kind of spark a little bit of a friendship on the outside while they wait for, you know, their sons to come out. And, um, it's, it's really, it's really hard for, for Thibodeau. He sees his mom on the news and he kind of starts to question, you know, should I leave? Um, but he really kind of falls for Michelle They're you know, they're fake married, but he, he really does care for her and he cares for her daughter serenity. And he talks to, to, um, Koresh about it. And he says, I'm, I'm thinking about leaving. And he's like, oh, your mother really got to you, didn't she? And then he said, you know, if I leave, can I take them with? And he says, no that's my wife. That's my daughter. It's not your job to protect them. It's mine, which is, which is really hard considering you kind of can put two and two together. What's going to happen in the end over the phone, Nessner in a reasonably calming tone, he begs crush to level with him. Um, and just as everything's settling down, Decker cuts their power off again. And then this is when they start to use psychological warfare, which they keep denying. They're like, Oh, we don't do any of this. They're using blinding lights like obnoxiously loud sound effects, music, like static noise. And it's awful. 
Um, Wayne Martin, one of the, I guess he's one of the leaders, he actually powers a generator. And then this actually I thought was kind of cool. Um, Koresh and Thibodeau use it to their advantage and they start playing music um, with the power of the generator. And it's funny because the FBI is like, I thought we turned everything off. And they're like, we did. Um, so I, th- I don't know. You're not really supposed to like that, but I kind of did. They knew that they had like limited time before it was <laughs> the power was going to get cut to it. So they're like, let's hurry. We're going to get this song or whatever, which I thought was funny. I did too. Like it, it was definitely like an act of defiance. I kind of liked it. Then we get to the final, the very tragic episode, which I'll just say throughout this entire show, all the different times where people are being attacked, you know, the gunfire and the women are, you know, laying over their kids and you hear these screaming and crying babies. I hate the sound of crying kids. I hate the sound of crying babies so, so much. That's why I don't let my son cry it out in the middle of the night. I just, I can't stand that noise. That is a big part of what made this show kind of hard for me to watch is seeing these kids scared and in pain. Like there was a point where I was watching it and I like, I had to look away because, and I know it's not real, but I'm just like, I can't do it. (laughs) Like I can't listen to this. Um, well, even knowing that it was real at one time, it's like, mm-hmm. it's hard to watch knowing that, yeah, this is actors portraying like what happened, but it's got to be what happens, you know, like this place is being attacked and there's kids and women and like, I mean, everybody is probably just freaking out. It's terrifying. And, and you got to think about it too. Like when it comes to these cults, like there's definitely like this perspective of when things like this happen and unfortunately lives are lost, like, oh, they got what they deserve. They're part of a cult. When I think that's so, it's, it's a, it's a really unfair way to, of, of thinking. It's a cruel way of thinking like, oh, these people deserve to die. Like, especially like, again, to bring up Jonestown, like a lot of those people were kids, like, and they were forced into it. They were forced into this mass suicide. They didn't deserve that. And truthfully, no one really deserved what happened to them in, in the, you know, the tragedy of Waco, but we'll get to that. So um, attorneys start visiting with, with uh, the Davidians and discuss the case at hand and their options. Ooh, sorry. From there, it looks like this, um, it looks like everything's kind of coming to a conclusion, but um, Koresh asks um, Nessner over the phone to let him write out the seven seals before he and his group submit themselves. And uh, Nessner agrees. However, the other FBI agents see it as a stall tactic and they remove him from the premises. And he says, you know, good luck, you know, because yeah, violence is definitely going to help again, you know, like in the the Ruby Ridge situation, it's really going to help. And he leaves and um, David and Steve are kind of going back and forth. You know, Steve is like, we, we need to get people out of here. This isn't going to be a safe situation their communication with the FBI and the ATF, they keep saying like, if you guys don't get out of there, shit's going to go down. And that's not a threat. It's a promise. And David's like, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to deliver my message. And he keeps stalling and he keeps stalling. And eventually, you know, enough is enough. And, um, they release tear gas into, um, into the compound, into the convent. And, um, they do it to lure out the members, but, and I didn't know this, I guess tear gas can start fires. And so eventually the entire place erupts in flames. Um, a lot of the, the women and children actually went down to the bunker for safety. They all have gas masks, but they went down there for, for safety, but they end up getting trapped down there, which is again, the crying children. It's awful. They're all stuck down there. They can't get out. Like this part specifically was really, really hard. 
it was really hard to watch, especially knowing that, I mean, when you're watching this, you know that a bunch of people die in the end. Um, and knowing, like, when you see these people going down and there's fire and it's just, like, ob- it's obvious what's going to happen, that they're going to get trapped, they're going to burn to death or, you know, from smoke inhalation. It's just, like, horrifying to watch while you're, like, you know exactly what's going to happen to these people. Right. And again, like you said, like, you know, this really happened to people too. Like even it's kind of like watching the Titanic, you know, like it's obviously a Hollywood film, but you know, this really happened to people. Like anything that's that's based on a true story. It's like, yeah, these are actors, but this is real. This is, this really happened to people and it's tragic and it's, and it's extremely sad. A few more um, Davidians, they end up um, uh, escaping. Like he jumps out of a window and um, those that do escape, are arrested and they keep saying over the over the um i want to say intercom that's not the right word over the loudspeaker they're like you know get out now protect yourselves save yourselves but they don't realize that all these people are trapped they can't get out they're stuck there's nothing that they can do and um one of the fbi agents i believe it's um decker he goes down to um where you can see i think it's rachel she's like clawing to get out of the bunker and he tries to save her and he, you know, is yelling for help. Somebody help me, somebody help me. And then she eventually from smoke inhalation and I think just suffocation f- collapses and, you know, dies. And like, that's so all, sad. It is. And it made me so mad because he's like, oh my God, what, you know, somebody help me. I'm like, you did this. Right. <laughs> you did this to these people. That's why they're down there. Like they try. And it's so sad because even Rachel was like, you know, we give up, we give up, we give up. And mm-hmm. it was too, it was too late. They, they all lost their lives. And, um, eventually, uh, Steve comes to find, um, uh, he comes to find David and he asks him to, um, t- to shoot him in the head, which he does. Um, and then Steve kills himself and, um, it brings the, the whole thing to, to an end. And, um, 76 people, died in the burning of the compound. Um, and it's just, it's so sad to see it. And then I believe on one of the the radio broadcasts, he mentions, you know, both, both parties claim that the other one started the fire. Um, but as we see in the past, all of these different standoff situations, you know, they use tear gas, the tear gas starts the fire, there's the burning down and people die. And this happens every single time. And they knew this, but they did it anyway. And they didn't have a plan for if there was a fire to save lives. And all of these people lost their lives because of that. Um, Thibodeau, he ends up being released. I don't, it says like two weeks later. So I don't know if he was just like detained. And then he, um, he um, reunites with his mother and, um, and then that's the end, but it ends with, with an epilogue with text over the screen, and I'll read exactly what it said. It says, the FBI denied using incendiary devices that would ignite a fire. They claimed the Branch Davidian intentionally started the fire in an apparent mass suicide. The Justice Department's Danforth report in 2000 comfort- concluded the fire was started by the Branch Davidians. The report also acknowledged that the FBI had used incendiary flashbang grenades in the assault. Surviving Branch Davidians maintain that there was never a plan for mass suicide. FBI negotiators successfully secured the release of 35 Branch Davidians during the siege as a result of the tragedy. 76 died in the fire, 25 of them were children. And just what a harrowing fact 
to end the whole series on just the amount of people that died. And I know it doesn't seem like a lot when we think about, you know, other massive tragedies, 9-11, over 3,000 people, um, you know, Jonestown, 1,000 people, hell, even the pandemic, over 100,000 people. It doesn't matter how many people it is, the loss of life is still profound and tragic. And when looking at this documentary, just face value, or not documentary, looking at this show at face value, if you don't know anything else about what was going on, you feel really badly for this group of people because it seems like all they wanted to do was just live together and be polygamous and, you know, speak the word of God. And, you know, when you really look into it, it's a little bit more than that. But, um, you know, honestly, none of these people, these innocent people, especially the women and children did not deserve to die. I'd also be really curious to know, because there were so many opportunities that people they were trying to get people out of there, you know, they like, they're like, please like let these people out. And David's like, no, you know, like, and then they're like, he's like, Oh, I'll just make a deal. And then he's like, no, just kidding. Um, I wonder how many people would have left if they were given the choice. Like once they knew that things were being like, that were things were really going downhill and that they could potentially die because I think it was Thibodeau that said, you know, like these people, knew that the end game for this cult was that they were going to have to die. David alluded to it like several times during, you know, when he was talking to the group of people who's saying that like different this, and yeah. Yeah. Like this is going to end in you all like dying for this cause, basically like to be saved, um, to be following David as the Messiah or whatever, and to get into heaven, you're all going to have to die. And like, I think he even said like, it was going to be like a fiery something or other. So. Well, and that's why a lot of them stayed. I mean, even like mm -hmm. Judy, like Steve was like, get out of here. She got shot in the hand and her hand looks fucked up, like super mm -hmm. infected. And she says she's in so much pain. She can't sleep, but she, she's like, I'm not leaving. If David's staying like these people are so, so enraptured. Yes, they're so enwrapped in his message. And again, he keeps saying all these things that are going to happen that, that happen, which, mm -hmm. I mean, you could just chalk up to coincidence, but they don't leave. They have the choice to leave, but they don't because they, they so, so faithfully stand behind this man and believe everything he says. And unfortunately it costs them their life. But I think too, like, I feel like some of them were like, I'm willing to die for, for David Koresh. I'm willing to die for the Branch Davidians. And I feel like some of them were like, no, I don't want to die here. And I think Thibodeau right. even said that. Thibodeau was like, I don't want to die in here. And I feel like if I stay, I'm going to. Right. I think and after a certain point, it was like, you know, the point of no return where you're not, you, you know, the place is on fire. People wanted to get out probably and couldn't. And then they ultimately lost their lives, which is just so tragic because it shouldn't take that for people to value their own lives. But also it was just kind of, I mean, when they say that they, I mean, that they knew what they were getting into. I don't think that a lot of people in, you know, in the last minutes of their lives really still want to die for that, like fall on that sword, you know? Right. I think that's so sad. I think that's true about a lot of cults, you know, when it, when it comes down to it, I think a lot of these people don't really want to do it. I think that they, and it, you know, we'll talk more about this in the second half, you know, cults 
are, are such a, I don't want to say taboo, but you know, they're, they're viewed in a very specific way that these people are crazy, generally religious fanatics. Um, typically they are people who are lost in life. They don't really have much family or friends. They really don't have anything in their life and they kind of just come become completely engulfed in, in this, in this lifestyle and they don't really realize what they've done to themselves before it's too late. And and honestly, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how crazy, and I say that in quotations, a person is, they don't deserve to be killed for their beliefs. let, Let me, let me rephrase. No matter what, these people didn't deserve to die the way that they did. Exactly. And, and I think too, you know, if you're not hurting anyone, what what's really the harm but again there's a lot more of a deeper story behind the branch dividends behind david koresh that the documentary left out but mm-hmm. um we'll talk a little bit more about that but first let's talk about what else we're watching I gotta be honest with you, Tina. Tina, oh my god! Don't let Rich hear that. I'm so sorry. <laughs> what is my name? I don't know. First, Nikki, now Tina. <laughs> I knew you were talking to me. Who else would you be talking to? <laughs> hey, lady. Um, I gotta be honest with you, Nina. I'm not watching anything else. Um, I am still watching a couple episodes of Degrassi, but I think oh I finally god. reached. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's kind of like me and Glee. I just can't stop. Um, but I know there's still, there's a ton of things that I'm excited to start watching, but, um, I I definitely focused a lot of my energy on this, um, on this show and the past weekend, um, was father's day. So I did spend a lot of time with my husband and my son and my dad. Um, so I, I guess I just didn't really have time to watch anything else, but I'm excited for what we have planned for July. What else have you been watching? Well, I just kind of on a whim, was I was looking for a new, a new show to watch. I was just kind of scrolling on on the platforms and I came across Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which I had always wanted to watch and, and uh, I didn't have, it's on Hulu. Um, I didn't have Hulu until like relatively recently. So um, I was trying to do a little bit of catching up. I don't think it, is it still on TV? I don't think it is. I, th- I mean, now I don't know, but I know that it was on Fox and then it got canceled. And then there was a huge uprising from the fan base <laughs> because they loved it. Um, and it got picked up by NBC. Oh, okay. Well, I'm still watching season one, but I really love it. I love Andy Samberg. Everything he does is hysterical to me. So I'm super into it. I've just been kind of binging it. And it's really easy because they're 20 minute episodes. So mm-hmm. I'm already like almost all the way through, this, through season one, but I feel regretful for not having watched it when it was coming out I just haven't really heard a lot about it either like I think a lot of people it wasn't like a huge thing like the office or friends or you know like I think a lot of people watched it but maybe there just wasn't as big of like cult following kind of thing no I agree I agree it it didn't really get this huge like and I think it's funny that it was on Fox and like, I always thought it was an NBC show because it was created by Mike Schur who, um, or at least he was a producer. He was behind it in some way who of course, you know, was a writer on the office for Parks and Rec. 
Um, so I was surprised that those two being NBC shows, that this was a Fox show. And I remember, I remember when they decided to cancel it and when they canceled it, I won't spoil anything for you, Nina, but when they canceled it, it was kind of in the middle of a really big plot point. So the fans freaked out and, um, then it was picked up by NBC. So as far as I know, the show's still on, but obviously, you know, can't really, we don't really know what's going to happen. Another show that I really love is Superstore, And I keep going to NBC because there's supposed to be one episode left in season five, but because of the pandemic, they weren't able to film it. So we're okay. kind of just in limbo with that. the final the season right now. And it got picked up for another season. So I'm like, what? What's what? I need to know what's going on. Like, and if you're familiar with the show, it's the end of season five and there's, there's some big stuff happening between two of the main characters, um, Amy and Jonah. And so I am, I'm desperate to know what's going to happen, but we, we don't know what's going to happen. So <laughs> we are in a very strange time right now. That's for sure. Yep. Yep. We I'm are. If, um, like the fall, the fall season shows are going to get pushed back at all. Oh, probably. I mean, you, around this time is when shows are filming, like they film mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer. So probably, and it's weird because everything's opening back up and it's so, it's such a weird, scary time because everything's opening back up, but the numbers just keep climbing. And there are certain yeah. states, thankfully, Nebraska is not one of them, but there are certain states where it's like, stay the fuck in your house because it's that bad. Like in Nebraska, we are reaching, I believe it's phase two. Um, Sorry, I feel like I'm going to burp. It's like, just like sitting there. There we go. Okay. I believe we're in phase two. And so more things are opening up now, but I mean, I'm still like, I don't, I, I feel so conflicted. It's like, I want to go do things so badly, but I mean, then you see these stories of like friends had a birthday party and they all got coronavirus and it's like, yep. what are we supposed to do? Like, I, I just, and here's the thing. Like I don't have a problem wearing a mask and that's just like apparently the hardest thing in the world to ask people to do. And it's so infuriating. It is. And it really makes you feel like, please don't hate me for saying this, but it makes you realize how just unbelievably selfish as a country we are. Like, no, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. Nobody can make me do anything. I totally agree. And if everybody would just follow the rules and you know, social distance appropriately, wear your mask, then it wouldn't be that bad. And we could make it through the phases easier. Like, dang, come on, you guys. It's so frustrating. Um, You know, I am like, if I could pick one thing other than going on vacation, um, one thing that I miss the most and just want things to go back to normal for is I just want to go see a movie in a movie theater. I know me too. Like being able to watch movies on demand is really nice, but mm-hmm. it's not the same. Like, like when with the pandemic, I've heard the AMC might be filing for bankruptcy. Oh, no. Yeah. Like they're really struggling, but, um, you know, I feel like movie theaters are never going to go away, even if some of them aren't around, but there, there is just something about going out to see a movie, the experience, especially mm-hmm. like opening night, you know, and you're seeing it with a bunch of other people, like there will never be anything that can compare to that. Like watching it, especially like, you know, a movie that's part of a series or a sequel or based on a book or whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. this movie that people are really excited about that have a huge fan base. And then you go and see it with like a hundred other people. Like there's nothing like that. There's nothing like that in the world. My husband and I live really close to a Marcus theater and they have $5 Tuesdays. So we 
really like to go on Tuesdays, like make it a whole thing. We get off work, we um, go and have dinner there, we get popcorn, we watch the movie, we come home. Like it's really kind of a whole event that we both really, really enjoy. And we were missing the movie theater really bad. Though I saw that Alamo Theaters, which there's one in Omaha too, um, are opening with social distancing, required masks, blah, 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 um, soon. So can you imagine? A, light, a light at the end of the tunnel, hopefully. Yeah. Can you imagine seeing a movie with a mask? <laughs> I don't even care at this point. I'm like, it's fine. I'll just wear a mask. It's fine. Either. Actually, I actually had one of my friends, um, she made masks. I asked everyone like, hey, so since this is going to be our lives for a while, where can I get some good masks? And she made some. And now I have some cute masks. Like, isn't that weird that now they're like, you can make them accessible? (laughs) It's true. It's so, what a weird freaking time we live in. It's just so bizarre. You know what I really want to do that I'm looking forward to is um, I have this tattoo idea that I'm wanting to get for a really long time. I want to get a tattoo for my son. And there are tattoos, like they're open, but they're, you know, you have to make an appointment just for a consultation and, you know, of course wearing masks and everything, which I'm, I'm okay with doing, but still just like all of that, like, like getting a tattoo is almost like a a medical procedure. And that just like feels icky to me right now with everything that's going on. So, but I have the rest of my life, I have the rest of my life to get a tattoo. So it's fine. Nice. But, uh. Anyway, that's what else we're watching. All right, everyone, welcome back to our review of Waco. So um, Nina, actually, since she had the idea of watching this show, she has some really interesting information on the show itself and the true story. So Nina, take it away. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk a little bit. Well, first of all, talk about this series again. So um, as we talked about, it premiered on Paramount Network on January 24th, 2018. And then it was eventually picked up by Netflix. So that's where you can view it now. Um, it was supposed to, be, supposed to be a movie originally, like we talked about. But it's actually based on two books. Um, we talked about during the review, both people, um, David Thibodeau and then Gary Nosner, who is the FBI negotiator, and each of them wrote books after um, the events that happened in Waco. So in 1999, um, Branch Davidian survivor David Thibodeau wrote A Place Called Waco. And so that is him describing his experience with the Branch Davidians and then everything with happen- that happened during the siege. And then um, FBI negotiator Gary Nosner wrote the book stalling for time my life as an fbi hostage investigator in 2010 and that actually talks about him and his like work as an fbi negotiator for a bunch of different um like other like siege situations like crisis and i i do like that um the title of his book stalling for time because his character in the show does does say in the first episode that like that is your that is your objective in this job is to stall because if you, if you, you know, hesitate or you say the wrong thing that can lead to, you know, somebody killing themselves or killing their family or killing whoever, you know, like, so it's all about stalling. Right. I would love to read either one of these books actually. Um, so yeah, Gary Nosner talks about how he was involved in, um, the FBI negotiations for Ruby Ridge and Waco and some other incidents that ended up, um, being like publicly, acknowledged so 
Um, lots of really cool things in those books that they obviously took from the books to make the show. Um, both of them actually served as advisors to the production on set. So I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, definitely makes it feel like it would be more accurate to have them say like, oh, no, it wasn't like this. Do it like this. So I thought that was really cool. Um, something that David Thibodeau said, he said in an interview, I want the people inside to be humanized. They died for what they believed in, whether or not you believe that or not. To me, they're martyrs and they shouldn't be demonized and hated. So that's something to kind of consider too when you're thinking like, wow, these people are dumb. Like, why wouldn't they just get out when they had the chance? Like, that's not what they were there for and they died for what they believed in, which is obviously in the end was very tragic, but, you know, they kind of knew that that was going to happen, I guess, which is, you can empathize with with that, you know, there's probably a lot of things in our lives that we would be comfortable dying for, so there's all of that, but I also want to talk a little bit about the history, so the history of the Branch Davidians is so complicated, as I was, like, trying to research this, I was getting myself super confused, because a bunch of different people um, were running different branches of the Branch Davidians, so basically from the beginning, um, Oh no. Hang on a second. Really quick, I just want to add, I'm I'm just kind of following along on Google. So the real David Thibodeau actually played a cameo in the show. In like one what? of the last scenes. Yeah. Well he um so the the scene where um um Nessner, is that how you say it? Uh, maybe I've been saying it wrong. Um he's like I think gonna testify against what happened. And um like the the character David Thibodeau is there, but then the real David Thibodeau is sitting next to him. And I feel like I'm gonna have to go back and watch it. <laughs> I want to see it. Your egg. <laughs> well, go ahead. Um, you should put that in the last part if you can like cut oh. it and move it. Sure. Yeah, I'll put it in. Cool. Um, so I just want to talk about the history a little bit. So the Branch Davidians were founded. The Branch Davidians that we're talking about in the show was founded in 1955 by Brent, Benjamin Rodin. Um, as a religious community and branch off of the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Church, which was like a subsidiary of the General Association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists, which was established in 1935. So when I was researching this, the history of the branch Davidians is super confusing because there's all of these different like subsectors of it run by different people. So it's kind of all over the place, but basically their primary belief was that Jesus wasn't the Christian Messiah um, and the real Messiah was still to come. So they were waiting for this real Messiah to come um, to lead them into heaven. They believe that they were living in a time where biblical prophecies and divine judgment were imminent ahead of the second coming of Christ. So they were waiting for that and they knew they were going to be dying in order to get into heaven, um, that they were going to find this Messiah, follow him until the end of days. So they established a headquarters near Waco, um, and at one point, 900 people moved there. They, they were awaiting a sign from God. So lots of people kind of lived in that in that area under the pretenses of this cult, basically. Um, Koresh himself rose to power as a young man in the 80s within the community, I guess, um, in part by taking its leader who was this like so he was like 20 at the time like in his 20s he like 
establish a relationship with this woman who was in her 60s whose husband was previously the leader of the cult and so he passed mm-hmm. away they had a child together he passed away and she took over so then Koresh like kind of weaseled his way in and had an affair with this woman and she died in 1986 at the age of 70 and her son her son with the um, previous cult leader their son George was supposed to be taking over um the cult and he and David kind of like had it out for each other and they fought about who was going to be leading the cult and eventually George ended up having he murdered somebody and went to prison so then that kind of opened the door for David to take over and he established the house of David sector of the branch Davidians so I would love to see this on a chart of like how how the branch Davidians is all like sectioned out it's very confusing yeah, I, I just really want like more, like I would love like a docu-series about this kind of just right. like from the beginning, because again, the show doesn't really tell you any of that. It just kind of either expects you to know, or it just kind of expects you to just take it at face value. Like, all right, this is the group and this is what the very, you know, the end of it, what led to the siege. Right. So prior to all this, actually, um, David Koresh, who was born with a different name, he changed his name to David Koresh, but he was born as Vernon Howell. Um, he was born to a 14-year-old mother, so um, kind of a, a atypical upbringing. Um, he was severely abused as a child. He had a learning disability. He was bullied. His father abandoned him, and his mother moved in with a man that was a violent alcoholic. So he obviously had a like, pretty traumatizing childhood. Um, he changed his name in 1990 to reference King David and then Cyrus the Great. So I guess Cyrus the Great um his his like the translated version of his name is Koresh so he has like a combinated com or combinated he has a combined name so that's kind of the history of of what was going on basically the branch davidians there are still two incarnations of the branch davidians around one that believes that david koresh was basically a false prophet and then the other believes that he was a true prophet and they're waiting for his resurrection so i think those people still live in waco um, which is just wild. So, so that's out there. Are any of those people survivors or are they just like new members? Do I'm you not know? sure actually. That would be a good thing to research. Um, I don't know how many people are still involved in the Branch Davidians, but um, I just know that there's still two sectors of it that are around. So that's kind of wild. I did not know that at all. Um, there are a few inaccuracies that happened during the series. So um, you're kind of led to believe that the FBI negotiator, Gary Nosner, however you say his last name, um, was there for the whole thing, but really he was only there for the first half of the siege. So I don't know if they like called him off and just said that we don't need you anymore, but he was not there at the end at all. He was just there for the first half. Um, and like I said, it, it actually didn't end the Branch Davidians. The fire and the siege was not the end of it. Um, a second group of Davidians settled in Mount Carmel, calling themselves Branch, the Lord, our righteousness, led by Charles Pace, who became a Davidian in 1973, but left the compound after Koresh's rise because he didn't agree with him, basically. So um, there are there were still people right after the siege happened that were kind of still hanging around um, as the Branch Davidians. And so Thibodeau had told the Dallas Observer during the filming of this that he understands like the creative license that was necessary to like create drama in the show but it wasn't all like that dramatic basically is what he said um 
but he and Gary Nosen are both like super happy with how the show turned out. Um, they Thibodeau said that it was the first time that both sides of the story had been discussed and, and put on film. So I think there was like f- a few other movies about Waco that depicted what happened, but they were from the view basically of the FBI. So he said that it was kind of a neutral um, storytelling of what happened so that they really liked that. And also I thought it was funny. I read that Thibodeau actually met Koresh at a guitar center and he gave him his business card. Koresh gave Thibodeau his business card and it had scripture on it. And there was no like pressure or anything, but he said that he was like sitting around and looking at the card and thinking about the scripture and wanted to know more. And so he followed up a week later. So it wasn't like David was like, oh, think about this, you know, like he gave him this card and kind of left and then Thibodeau took it up upon himself to give him a call and and get himself involved in the branch of videos which i thought was kind of crazy but um another really crazy fact i read about it was that and this like really hurts my heart to read this but um i read that motivated by his dislike for the u.s federal government and unhappy about the handling of the ruby ridge incident and the waco siege Timothy McVeigh timed the Oklahoma City bombing to coincide with the second anniversary of the fire that ended the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, which mm-hmm. I was like, that is, I had no idea. That is so sad. Yeah. I didn't know that those were, yeah, that's, that was kind of like his inspiration. I had no idea. Either. Yeah. So, so sad. Um, but given all of that, I mean, I feel like there's still a lot to kind of unpack about the whole thing it was such a, like a traumatizing regardless of the history of the of the cult and everything like just such a traumatizing end for those people absolutely and um one thing that that i read i did a little bit of research myself is um there was talk that um the children were being abused um in uh in the compound and there's even a scene i think in the second episode where um uh um david is doing like a some sort of like demonstration and um, it looks like he's about to hit his child, but instead he gives him ice cream and then he gives everyone ice cream. And it's, it's kind of like a sweet moment that you think is going to be bad, but it's not, but th- th- it is, you know, rumored that um, he molested children, abused children. Um, unfortunately, nothing ever came of that. There was never any like proof of that. Um, kind of went nowhere. Um, but, uh, one thing that I personally did not really like about this series was they spent all this time talking about like, all they wanted to do was get these guns, you know, their legal, their legal gun collection, um, which, um, Thibodeau has said that they sold a lot of them at gun shows. Like they didn't have nearly as many as, as the media and as the FBI made them out to have, um, but then it, even in the show, they just gloss over like, yeah, there's polygamy. Yeah, there's there were child brides. But I mean, you know, that's not what we care about. And like that to me is like, oh, well, hold on. That's a huge point. Like, I, I, and, you know, they really paint um, Koresh in like a, a, a very sympathetic light, which I understand was like a really big, um, uh, it was a really big, uh, I can't think of the word. Oh my gosh. It was a big 
conflict with people in watching this. They didn't like that he was painted so sympathetically, knowing what kind of person he was. And I think that sometimes it was sort of sympathetic towards him and his beliefs and his and his people. But at the same time, as unfortunate as it was that these people died, yes, the FBI, yes, the ATF, in my opinion, I obviously wasn't there, were responsible for these people dying, acting out of you know, aggression out of, you know, they did not do what they should have done, but also David didn't really try to get people out either. Like he right. should have known, especially with the women and children in there, they needed to get out if, but it, it's, it's so conflicting. It, this whole thing made me feel so many different things because it's like, and it makes me want to talk about cults a little bit in general, you know, cults have such a negative connotation. I personally do not like them and I understand the, why people join them you know, they feel lost. They feel like they need someone to, to guide them and feel some sort of family acceptance, a group. And so I get why people do. Um, and, uh, you know, regardless though, of why you join a cult, why you're in one, what you believe, these people are still people and it's human lives that are being lost human lives that, you know, were, were put in, you know, the middle of the crossfire that unfortunately were taken too soon. And, um, when it comes to this cult specifically, you know, it, it's really unfortunate that so many of these people just got caught up in all of that. And, um, I, I'm not a polygamist. I don't that whole thing. And 14 year olds marrying much older men. I think David was only like in his thirties when he died. Um, so I don't think his first wife was that much younger than him, maybe like 10 years still is gross, but, um, you know, like, I don't agree with any of that and, you know, whatever happened with the children, was he abusive or not? I obviously don't know, but I will say this, what the, the fact that there's still so much debate on what really happened, whether it was the FBI and the ATF that started the fire, whether it was the branch Davidians, whether they actually did want to commit mass suicide or not, it was completely mishandled. It shouldn't have happened. These people should not have died. It was wrong. I wish it was just, you know, David was in prison, you know, and everyone else got to live and got to leave with their lives. And it's, it's just such a, a tragedy what happened to these, these innocent people that did nothing wrong, but just wanted to, to be closer to God, you know? Right. And I think that, you know, whether or not you think that David Crush was crazy or, or what are like mentally ill or whatever, you know, people still believed in him and it's their choice if they wanted to or not you know? Yeah. And this might sound like I'm like sympathizing with cults, but you know, if you're not hurting anyone, why can't people just do what they want to do? Like if you're not hurting anyone, if you're not doing anything illegal, and I'm not saying that they weren't doing anything illegal, but if you're, you know, if you're just, you can believe in my eyes, you can believe in a flying spaghetti monster in the sky. You know, if you're not hurting anyone, I don't care. You know, whatever makes you happy, whatever gets you through this shitty existence, that sounds really bleak, but (laughs) whatever you use to get through life and to, you know, give you hope, as long as you're not hurting anyone else, what is the problem? I think for the most part, this group wasn't hurting anyone and even in the show they had said like you know when like the local police officer he didn't even have a gun because he knew how to handle these these people he knew how to talk to david he knew like hey when they were doing things they weren't supposed to do he knew how to handle it and once the fbi got involved once the atf got involved it that's when lives were lost Mm -hmm. it seems like the only person really that was at fault was david um for you know breaking the law as far as like 
child abuse and sexual assault of minors and those kinds of things. Um, so it really easily could have been handled if they were just like there to arrest David, not there to like disband this group. Right. Um, I think that they felt like these people for whatever reason, all were at fault um, because they were following him. But really, if, if you want to put the blame on anybody for what was happening there, that was not legal. If I feel like, you know, it was really ultimately only David that should have been punished for that. And yet they all kind of suffered the same fate, which is terrible. Yeah. In my eyes, it was definitely both. It was Dave, it was David and it was also the authorities that, you know, carried out the attacks. I think yeah. both are at fault, but all the innocent people in the middle, it, they did nothing wrong. They were just, again, right. you know, like I, I've said before, people join cults for different reasons. They just, they just want a place where they feel heard and they feel accepted and that's all that they wanted and mm-hmm. just to be a part of something. And, you know, whether you agree with that or not, you know, when all these people, when people in cults die, whether by mass suicide or whatever, there's this, this idea of like, oh, they got what they deserved. But it, again, it's human lives. You know, they, they, they don't deserve that. They did not deserve to suffocate or, you know, because of smoke inhalation, like that, again, it was all dramatized. It wasn't, you know, it was just actors, but seeing that, you know, these people being trapped, these children gasping for air, just, I couldn't, it got, it got me so hard. It just, it made me so sad. And again, knowing how real it is really just kind of put that into a different perspective and it just yeah. broke my heart. Yeah. I feel like regardless, like of who started it or whatever the argument is there, like it was very poorly handled by the FBI and the ATF. And we'll never know what happened. We'll never really know because we weren't there. We weren't right. part of the, the religious sect. We were not part of the FBI. We'll never know. And the two sides are always going to, you know, say mm-hmm. it was them. They started it. That's always going to be what, what happens. But um, I think, I don't know if I can say we've, we've learned from this because I don't think we have, but um, I just, you know, cults are, again, I find them super fascinating, but I also find them extremely sad for, you know, the people that get lost in them. But um, it was really interesting for me to watch this series because again, this happened when I was an infant. I did not know about it until recently. And so getting to see it from a more, you know, just in-depth perspective on what happened was definitely really really interesting for me. I I learned something and, um, it also made me really sad. Yeah. It's kind of hard to rate this show because it's based on historical events. Um, and I can't rate a historical event, but, um, cause it would get a zero. Yeah. No stars. But, um, as far as rating the actual show, what would you, how would you rate it, Jamie? You know, I got to say, I did not enjoy this as much as I thought it, I would. I thought the acting was good, but I thought some of, hmm, okay, I'll start with what I liked. I liked the acting. I thought everyone did a great job as far as playing their characters, um, especially I'm um, the actor who played um, David Koresh. I thought he did a fantastic job. Michael Shannon, as always, is wonderful. Um, and I did really appreciate the two different perspectives. I liked seeing those two perspectives from both sides. And I especially appreciated Nessner's perspective, how he knew what they were doing was wrong. And the scene of him sobbing at the end because he knew what happened and he wasn't able to stop it, you know, kind of humanized him a little bit. Um, 
And so I, I did appreciate both of those perspectives. I like how they took in two different books from the two different perspectives to make this and they came together to tell this story. I did really like that. Um, all of that being said, what I didn't like was I thought the story was a little bit all over the place. I wish we, I wish we had learned a little bit more backstory. I feel like, I feel like it wasn't enough as a mini series. I felt like it definitely could have been longer or maybe, I don't know. I just, the, the story was a little all over the place for me. And again, just all of the children made it just, it was, it was too hard for me to watch at times. So I think I'm going to give it a three out of five for all those reasons. Gotcha. I would give it. I would agree with the things that you liked about it. Um, I loved the actors. I thought they did a great job, especially when you're playing like historical people. It would be not only historical people, but some historical people that are deceased. So um, I think it would be really hard to try and channel those people when they're not around anymore. And especially when the media has portrayed like David Koresh as a really negative person. Um, I'm sure that was really difficult to and try to fall into that character of trying to portray him in, in an honest and, you know, sometimes positive light for the things that he did do well as a leader, um, while also taking into account the things that he obviously did that wasn't great. Um, I liked a lot of things about it. I thought it was like really, it was a good, it was good to watch though. I agree with you that it was confusing the way that it, was laid out like I feel like I would have enjoyed it more if it was chronological um I got a little bit confused but that it was kind of back and forth between like what's happening at the end and what happened in the beginning like I think if we had a little bit more of a backstory at the actual beginning then it would have set it up for more success at the end um as far as like understanding of what actually happened um, I really liked that they had at the end the like little summary of what happened afterward. Um, I think that the show did a lot of good things, but I feel like it was a little bit confusing at times. So I think I would give it maybe like a 3.75. Good. I, I, I don't know what I was going to say. Good, I guess. <laughs> good review. <laughs> um, all right, guys. Well, um, that is Waco. Again, that is available on Netflix. Give that one a watch if you haven't already, um, especially if you're already familiar with it. If you were not a baby during that time, it might make a little bit more sense to you than it did for me and Nina. Um, but uh, we recommend it. Give it a watch. Um, next week- Really interesting. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, cut you off. Um, it's really interesting to think about like <laughs> what's going on in, in our world today and how you know maybe in 50 years they're going to make a movie about the pandemic and and then we're going to be like oh yes remember when remember when you know i'm sure a lot of people that are listening to this podcast probably remember watching the siege go on on tv and it would be i would love to hear like what you guys remember from it oh yeah absolutely if you if you were you know not like i said not a baby during this time and you have memories let you know leave it in the comments what you know what you remember about it um and um, we'd love to hear it. Um, next week is the 4th of July. So we have a really special episode for um, Independence Day. So look out for that one. As always, you guys, if you are watching anything that you think that we should give a review, please let us know. Um, and I haven't said this in the past couple episodes, but again, you know, with, with things with COVID kind of picking up again, I appreciate all of you guys out there on the front lines that are doing the most and are helping out all of our sick sick loved ones. So again, thank you to all of our healthcare professionals, our nurses, especially our, um, 
ER nurses, ICU, and our uh, respiratory therapists. Appreciate all of you guys for what you were doing during this time. Um, uh, but until next time, you guys keep on streaming. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Atlas Now Streaming. Let us know in the comments what you're watching and if we should give it a review. Until next time, keep streaming. <laughs>